The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast. This week, is there a humane solution to Britain's migrant crisis? Plus, why is the WHO so down on e-cigarettes? And finally, after a year and a half inside, are we all more angry than ever? First up, increasing numbers of people are crossing the channel and the British government seems to have no idea what to do about it, says Douglas Murray in his cover piece. The UK border force has effectively become an arm of the smugglers network, he says, but of all the ways to run an asylum system, a first over the channel in a dinghy competition is the worst. Charlotte Eager begs to differ. Alpha migrants, as she calls them, are bright, brave and could help solve our labour crisis. They both join me now. Douglas, in this week's issue, you discuss Britain's new migrant crisis. Can you start by setting up for listeners how bad things seem to have got? Uh, Yes. Listeners will be aware that this has been a bubbling issue for some time in the UK as across Europe. The UK is in some ways the hardest, well, in many ways, the hardest bit of our continent to get to. To get to the UK, to make the illegal crossing across the Channel, you have to have passed through multiple uh, safe countries in the EU and have paid the people smugglers thousands of pounds to get across the Channel. And this process has sped up. The numbers have increased uh, significantly. We're not uh, at any level like that, which, say, Greece or Italy has been at at stages in the last decade, but the numbers are significant. There was a doubling of entries last year. There's a doubling so far this year. And uh, in in one day recently, we saw um, a, a height of almost 500 people arriving in a single day. So it's moved from being an issue which politicians could sort of dodge to one I think they're not going to be able to dodge. The numbers are significant enough now and growing and will continue to grow. And I suggest that this is a serious political question for the government to address, one that it keeps pretending to address, but doesn't. Charlotte, you also write about this in this week's issue, but you have a slightly different take to Douglas in that you say that Britain should welcome anyone who arrives here and we should put their skills to good use. Can you explain your argument? Well, yes. I mean, it's. I mean, I was really struck, particularly struck. I've worked a lot over the last eight years with refugees, mainly Syrian refugees, and I've met an enormous number of migrants, some of whom are illegal and some of whom aren't, some of whom came on boats over here or boats to Germany, some of whom came through the asylum process. And I've also spent a long part of my career covering the kind of wars that these people are fleeing. You know, I've been to Iraq, I've been to Afghanistan, I spent my 20s in Bosnia and in the former Soviet Union. Um, So I know the forces that are driving them. But the thing that really struck me a couple of weeks ago was that there were these two parallel stories going on in the press. There was this, you know, oh, my God, what are we going to do about all these people turning up on boats in Britain? And then 
help, help, help. We haven't got any waiters, lorry drivers and fruit pickers and our fruit is rotting the fields and you know, restaurants and pubs and cafes are having to shut down because of the lack of catering staff, post, possibly post-Covid, possibly post-Brexit when a lot of people have gone back to Eastern Europe. And we've traditionally as a country relied on migrants to fulfil a lot of these sort of jobs. In the old days, it was from the Commonwealth, uh, but more recently it's been from Eastern Europe. And I thought, well, why don't we put the two and two together? And I have to say, in my experience, every single migrant I have met who has had the drive and the guts and the determination and the luck to get leave their country and cross, you know, walk for days through Syria, Turkey, wherever, smuggle themselves in the back of a lorry, you know, arrange with people smugglers, get in a boat, come across the Mediterranean, go all their way through Europe, decide that France, Germany, Austria are not good enough for them. No, no, they want to come to the UK, hand over another two grand, get on a rubber dinghy, come over here. They're amazing. They're amazingly motivated people. They're highly intelligent. M many of them would, most of them, frankly, would much rather still be at home um, living their very nice previous war lives, but they can't. And they've come here. And I think we should just put the two and two together. We should, what I think is important is that we make it part of the asylum process. So most illegal immigrants I've met have said that the most weird, bizarre part for them is when they get here finally, and then they're not allowed to work for up to, you know, some people up for 11, 12 months, more than a year before they get their leave to remain. And they find that very, very depressing and kind of pointless. And they would much rather be able to work and start contributing to the UK. Douglas, what do you make of Charlotte's argument? Well, it is not surprising that it's uh, problematic when they arrive because they've broken the rule, rules, they've broken the law by trying to circumvent the existing system. And as I say in my piece, there is a serious problem here, which is that the system that Charlotte is suggesting, as she well knows, uh, is one that means that the Britain has a parallel asylum system to the one currently in place. There is the legal route that you could take. And then there is the whoever gets across fastest in a rubber dinghy competition gets to pick our fruit competition. I think this is highly, highly dangerous for the country. It's highly dangerous for our existing border system. And apart from anything else, will be in the long term deeply inhumane. Because what you would say to people is, if you, can, if, if, if you are strong enough to make it through this route, and as, as Charlotte well knows, the vast majority, something like 87% of the people who arrive by dinghy are men. These are not, we're not talking here about the, 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 the simply the most war-torn war and full of plight people, because if it was the case, then there would be a, a, at least an equal ratio of women and children. It is young men who fight their way across Europe and across many countries to get here. And if we have a system that says, as well as a system in place, we have this parallel system that rewards the law-breaking and rewards those who pay the people smugglers and, and, and much more, then I think that our entire asylum system uh, is a farce. And it may well be that, that we should completely revolutionise our asylum system. That's an argument to make. But the worst way to make that argument is to say that the rubber dinghy competition is, is a way to do that. And one other thing, very quickly, if I may, I, I like Charlotte, I've spent a significant amount of my time among migrants, among refugees, among people fleeing conflicts and in the countries that they've been fleeing from. And I don't underestimate that at all. The problem is that it's not at all clear to me 
that Britain can be a haven for people fleeing all of the world's ills, both conflicts, economic deprivation and much more. In recent weeks, the UK has seen at the border a significant surge in arrivals from Vietnam. What do we do about that? What's our policy for improving life in Vietnam to try to stop being an it being an incentive to come to the UK from Vietnam? Nobody knows. So what we have is this piecemeal system, which, as I say, rewards people who break the law. So firstly, I'd like to deal with the fact that you say most of them are young men. Well, of course they are. They're fleeing fighting. No, of course they are. Now, if no, you want, if you want to stop wars. The way you stop them is you take away the oxygen that feeds the war, which is young men of fighting age. All the young Syrian men that I've met in this country, without exception of fleeing the draft or being sucked into being forced to fight for one of the militias. So, of course, they're mainly young men who get here. It's not at all clear to me that Britain is meant to be the haven for anyone fleeing the draft in any foreign country that has a war. And secondly, Charlotte, as you know, most of the arrivals in Europe in recent years, for instance, are not fleeing warfare. That's the figures of the European Commission itself. Most are fleeing economic troubles. I agree that a lot of them are fleeing economic troubles. Most. Um, I, I, I agree that a lot of them are. They, however, a significant number of them are fleeing, for example, Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, those are not only war-torn countries, but they're countries where we, frankly, are culpable. Well, you know, we invaded Afghanistan, then we invaded Iraq. You know, we can hardly be surprised if people you know, want to flee those countries in the, you know, in the first place because we've made them largely uninhabitable. You know, it was largely uninhabitable anyway, in many ways. But Iraq, we did invade it. And we invaded it, frankly, without a decent plan about what to do with it afterwards. And I went to Iraq, you know, shortly after the invasion, and I saw the chaos and the anarchy that was sure. there. So I'm afraid that I, I, I think that, um, you know, young men fleeing economic chaos have always come to Britain. And, you know, go back in time, go to the Huguenots, go to... Go, 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 go to the great waves of Jewish immigration at the la latter half of the 19th and early part of the 20th century, and indeed in the 1930s as well. Now, are we really proud of the number of Jewish people that we didn't allow to come here in the 1930s? Was that a good well, thing? The, and I think that we can all agree that, frankly, I think we can all agree that people like Sir Klaus Moser and Emily Maitlis's grandparents have enormously given to this, this country. They've contributed to this country. Well, it's, it's, it's possible to pretend that everybody who arrives in the dinghy across the channel is going to produce Emily Maitlis, but I think it's unlikely. Well, obviously, um, we're not and... all Emily Maitlis, are we? Otherwise, you and I be presenting Newsnight, and so would Laura. But what I'm saying is they can be very, very, very useful and dynamic. Nobody's people. doubting that, but this is, this is the whole problem of the debate about this, which is that people go into the fantasy land situation where all of these people who arrive are remarkable people who are going to lead remarkable lives and contribute remarkably to the economy. And none of the, the, of the data that we have suggests that that's the case. Most are going to spend their lives taking out more from the system than they are going to put in. That's inevitable. It takes an exceptionally long time for an individual to be able to pay in taxation back what they have taken out in benefits for any person, let alone somebody arriving from such a situation. Secondly, the figures that we're talking about are wildly off. Charlotte just talked about the Huguenot situation. Everybody always cites the Huguenots. The Huguenots was such an unusual movement into the UK that we're still talking about it in the 21st century because it was the exception, not the norm. In the 1680s, 50,000 Huguenots came into the UK and we're still talking about it. 50,000 will be a very, very average year of illegal immigration in the system that Charlotte's talking about. And it would be not just once in four centuries, but every year. 
Charlotte, do you accept that if if Britain was to bring in the system that you are suggesting, that it would then encourage more people to make what is obviously a very dangerous journey across the channel? Yes, I think that is a risk. However, we're not going to stop these people trying to come here anyway. And what I think we should do is try and at least regularise their ability to start working and contribute to the economy. If we had them working, you know, as part of the asylum process, quite regulated, so they're paying tax um, when they get here. I, most people I know would be absolutely delighted by that. And the illegal immigrants I know, you know, quite well. One of them actually started working for the Home Office pretty soon after he got here and now is at Strathclyde University and work, reading computer science and doing get, working for a gaming company. Another one's actually teaching at Glasgow University and he was, he was a captain on container ships and he had to flee the draft basically and he has he's busy requalifying to be a captain on container ships now in the UK but that's taken a few years and during that time he got a job teaching Arabic at, at Glasgow University the um, and I could I could go on because I've met quite a few you know they want to work I don't know anybody who doesn't want to work who's come here I really don't of the illegal migrants I really don't and of course there's a parallel system you know but in a way, we, it's not really a parallel system. We've always allowed people to want and need who come here to claim asylum. You're just, there's a new system that's been set up with the, you know, being able to claim asylum through the UNHCR in a third country, etc., etc. That's a new thing. The old thing is the desperate people who came here. And I think it's really important as part of our value system. You know, we set ourselves up you know, as a Western democracy of liberal values and we should stand by those values. We should stand by them and, and we should welcome people in I, need I, who come I, here. I've, I've, I'm afraid I'm, I'm cynical about this because I've heard it all before. I've heard it for years and I've heard it across, particularly across Mediterranean Europe. Everything that Charlotte is saying, I've heard in uh, Greece, Italy, Spain and Portugal in the last decade and more. And here's what happens. People like Charlotte say, our value system has always meant that anyone who wants to walk into our country should be allowed to do so. The system breaks down, people encourage the illegal migration, it grows and grows until it becomes so out of hand that the country that people have been encouraged to come to has to shut its borders and carry out very, very punitive measures to stop the flow that has been encouraged by people like Charlotte in exactly that situation. It happened in Scandinavia in the middle of the last decade, and I do not want to see it happen in Britain, because what happens is people with perfectly good intentions, who believe that the way to satisfy their own conscience is to open our borders to the world without asking the British people whether they want their tax to be used in this fashion, encourage the world to come and then they see the consequences of the action. That's why Sweden invited people and then said no. That's why Denmark at the beginning of the process in the middle of the last decade said it's part of our values to open our borders and then said no. It's because there is no end to the number of people around the world who are fleeing bad situations, whether warfare, whether uh, economic deprivation or much more. One third of sub-Saharan Africa said to Gallup last year they would like to move. They do not want to move to the Middle East, they want to move to Europe. And once into Europe, very many of them want to, to move to Britain. Britain cannot be the haven for any young man in the world who wants to avoid the draft, 
It cannot be the haven for anyone in the world who has not got the life they want. It's terrible, it may be sad, it may be bad uh, for our consciences for a moment, but it is much better that we retain the principle of borders and the rule of law than that we pretend that Britain can do something we cannot do and to try to carry out an experiment which would last a very brief time before public pressure on our politicians made them call an absolute halt to the whole thing. If we weren't cutting the aid budget, we could probably make try and make life a bit nicer for people in sub-Saharan Africa, frankly. You know, investment in the countries, build stuff for them to do, etc., etc., etc. I'm talking specifically about war zones where it's very difficult to persuade people to stay at the moment because they are so dangerous. And a lot of the people I know want to go back when it's safe. You know, they want to be here, they want to work here, they want to contribute to our economy. They're very grateful to Britain. And they want to go back when they can. Thank you, Douglas and Charlotte. Next up, as anyone who has tried to quit smoking knows, it's not an easy task. For many people, the introduction of mainstream nicotine vaping was a godsend. But now the WHO appears to have this new technology square in their sights. Christopher Snowden writes about this strange new front in the war on smoking for this week's Spectator. He joins me now, along with Clive Bates, the director of the counterfactual and previous head of ASH, Action on Smoking and Health. Christopher, your piece in this week's issue focuses on the upcoming COP9. I'm sure lots of our listeners will have heard of the Climate Change Summit COP26, but what exactly is COP9? COP9 is the conference of the parties for the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which is a World Health Organization treaty, their only treaty, in fact, uh, to which the UK and most countries are signatories. And COP is the meeting where they get together, very much like the climate change one, really, where member states get together and discuss the issue and how they can move things forward and they have little votes and um, and resolutions. The difference between that and the climate change conference, though, is that the climate change conference gets masses of publicity. Politicians are really keen to talk about it. Politicians go to it. Um, whereas the COP meetings, almost nobody's heard of them. Uh, that's the way the organisers seem to like it. Politicians themselves don't generally go. They send civil service uh, people. It's impossible to find out what the process is for delegates, and half the time we have no idea who the delegates are. Um, but they are of significance. I mean, it's the issue, theoretically, is just tobacco, but they have increasingly got involved with e-cigarettes, vaping, other reduced-harm products, and they've taken the same prohibitionist approach to those as they have to tobacco. It's debatable whether e-cigarettes are really within their remit, actually. But they do have a, a, a very negative view of e-cigarettes. The World Health Organization, just after I filed my copy, actually, for the, for the article in The Spectator, put out a horrendous report funded by Mike Bloomberg, who is the billionaire prohibitionist used to run New York City making all sorts of wild claims, which the WHO then repeated on Twitter about how cigarettes cause heart disease, cancer, lung disease, brain damage in children, uh, none of which was really supported with evidence in the report. So they seem to be getting more and more extreme in, in this area, and their view of the issue is totally contrary to the view of the Department of Health, as far as I can see, and certainly of Public Health England and most sensible people in the United Kingdom. And yet the UK is funding this thing. I think the UK gives the FCTC about 70% of its money. So potentially it's heading for a showdown at this conference, which actually is held online. It was going to be held in The Hague. But there is a clear clash of ideologies here, um, and somebody presumably is going to prevail. 
Clive, you, along with various academics and medical staff, wrote a letter to the Director General of the WHO urging them to reassess its tobacco and nicotine policy. What were your primary concerns? Well, I think the the problem is in the WHO and the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, you get a coming together of sort of political grandstanding, really terrible science that is very misleading and tries to build up a, a you know a, a, a fake narrative about the alternatives to smoking plus really dreadful policy ideas where nobody pays any attention to trade-offs or unintended consequences you know for example if you as they've done in India and everybody in the WHO seem to celebrate this they banned e-cigarettes even though India has a hundred million smokers so uh, you know stroke of the pen They've denied 100 million smokers options to switch to much lower risk products. But they don't seem to care about that. The effect will be more smoking, a bigger black market, worse products, more crime. Uh, But that just doesn't seem to figure in their reasoning. So myself, uh, many uh, experts in the field occasionally write to WHO to say, for goodness sake, think a bit more carefully about this. Actually, what we have here is a way of reducing the massive burden of disease caused by smoking, not caused by nicotine, but by smoking. And you have set yourself in opposition to it. That opposition will lead to more harm than good. It won't help anybody. It will harm people. It will lead to more smoking, more criminality, more black markets and worse products. So all we're doing is constantly, with ever more clever arguments, making that point over and over again to them. But they seem, as Chris says, completely impervious, completely unaccountable. They've got their funding. They're sitting in Geneva or wherever else. And, you know, they don't seem to be swayed by mere arguments. Christopher, who stands to benefit from this if, if the WHO do ban e-cigarettes? And it doesn't sound like it's necessary for health reasons, but someone must be benefiting. Uh, well, primarily, it would be companies that sell cigarettes. I mean, these are direct substitutes. It's really not very complicated. If you suppress one, then you effectively encourage the other. The UK's position has been to encourage vaping because that helps to suppress smoking. And it does it very effectively without harming anybody's liberties, without costing the taxpayer a penny. And the WHO is, a, is a doing effectively the exact opposite. There is loads of evidence, including from economics, actually, showing that these are substitute products. And if you try and clamp down on one in any way, whether it's by putting a tax on it or, as they have done in parts of America, by uh, banning e-cigarette flavours, then more people smoke. It's not really rocket science. But yeah, I mean, the beneficiaries, I guess, would be uh, primarily companies that sell cigarettes, to some extent perhaps pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry has been lobbying against vaping for a, for a long time because they sell you know nicotine patches and gums and so on. But yeah, primarily people who sell cigarettes, which is you know to say you know, to, to state the obvious, fairly ironic given what the WHO's position is on smoking. And Clive, how, how are tobacco companies reacting to the WHO's uh, war on vaping? Well, they're, they're kind of in despair in a way. I mean, it's getting increasingly difficult to tell who the good guys and the bad guys were. You know, when, when I was involved in tobacco control work in the early 2000s, it was pretty clear who was bad. Not so much now. So what they've done is they've got a range of products that don't involve combustion. So pouches, heated tobacco products, vaping products, uh, smokeless tobacco, 
All of these things can substitute for smoking, but at vastly lower harm. Everybody, every, anybody who studies the science would be pretty clear on that. So they think, well, okay, game on. Our strategy is to try and move the base of people who want to smoke or to use nicotine onto these much less harmful products, which seems to me like a good corporate strategy and an alignment of business interests, economic interests and public health interests. And therefore game on for a really good public health strategy because actually the private sector would be behind it. (laughs) But they're facing nothing but incredible resistance to this from everybody, whether it's the European Commission, the World Health Organization, crazy academics who just sort of kind of spoofing extremely weird science into the marketplace for communications, all of which is holding back that transition, meaning that more cigarettes are sold or the decline in the cigarette market is slower than it otherwise would be. More people are smoking, more people are getting sick. And the companies, I think, from what I know of them, are just incredibly frustrated. They think they're trying to do the right thing, but they're being stopped and kind of almost being made to stick with their legacy product when a perfectly good alternative is available that you can move people onto with their consent. And, you know, Chris's point about you doing this without infringing anybody's liberties, you're not clobbering them with restrictions or taxes or bans or anything. You're basically moving people with their consent because if they're told the right information about these products, they want to move to them. So in many ways, it's a, a perfect policy. It doesn't require coercion or punitive measures. People pay for it with their own money. They do it on their own initiative. The private sector does all the heavy lifting. (laughs) And yet, fancy that, people who favour status and punitive measures are against it. Christopher, just finally, you you say in your piece that the WHO's goal essentially is for a nicotine-free future. Do you think that would be a terrible thing? Well, it would be an impossible thing. That's the point. You know, it's it's kind of war on drugs rhetoric. There's to have this, you know, utopian idea of, of what's achievable. I've written a history about tobacco and smoking years ago, and there have always been these dates a little bit in the future when there's going to be no more smoking. There was a cigarette-free America by, ni- by 1925. Under Surgeon General Coop, it was going to be a smoke-free America by 2000 AD. You know, this stuff doesn't happen, um, and even with the most draconian laws, as we've seen with the war on drugs, it, it, it doesn't happen. A tobacco-free world itself is an extremely ambitious aim, to put it mildly. A nicotine-free world is not even justifiable on the grounds of health, let alone ethically or economically justifiable. It's just, it's a crazy and totally unnecessary and perhaps most of all, totally unrealistic aim to have. And I don't think you can put a lot of faith in people who have so little understanding of the real world that they think this is something that can be strived for, or, but more importantly, should be strived for. As I say, there's just no... Why would you want to have a nicotine-free world? I've been, I'm addicted to nicotine, quite happy to be that way. The only problem I've ever had with being addicted to nicotine is anti-smoking people trying to get me to stop smoking. I then did that and switched to vaping, and now there's a lot of people want me to stop me to do that. At the end of the day, that is none of, none of anybody else's business. You can see from a health perspective why people might want to, you know, have nobody in the world smoke cigarettes. But I see no reason at all why you'd try and go for a, a nicotine-free world. But that is the explicit aim now of the WHO, and it shows the kind of fanaticism we're up against. Christopher and Clive, thank you very much for joining. And finally, Damien Thompson is feeling angry and writes about it in this week's issue, giving us a potted history of his raging estrangers, both past and present. 
Damien joins me now along with Stuart Preble, who created the hit TV show Grumpy Old Men. Damien, your piece in this week's Spectator begins with an account of, and I quote, you going off on one. What does it look like when you go off on one? It doesn't look like very much, but it sounds very loud. I think it's acutely embarrassing for everybody in the shop, including me. I'm always embarrassed by these things. But the rage is absolutely genuine, and it bursts, it bubbles out out of nowhere. You didn't realise you were so insanely furious with this annoying person for saying, excuse me, you invaded my space, or whatever. And you do rather wonder where the intensity of the rage comes. But my genuine, general approach is this tosser is complained in a very annoying way about something that didn't happen. I'm completely innocent, pushing past or not looking where I'm going or whatever. Never dream of such a thing. And they've decided to make a pathetic fuss about it in the shop or wherever. And they'll think twice before they do it again because they'll get more than they bargained for. That's the way it works out anyway. Do you normally say something to the person or does it just bubble up and then you keep it to yourself? No, no, I never keep it to myself. Ever. This is the whole point. I've, other people keep it to themselves, but I've never, never been... Keeping my anger to myself has never been my strong suit, as I think every little spectator knows, everybody who's ever worked with me knows. It doesn't happen all that. I don't walk around in a permanent rage, or at least I didn't until I got older. So in this case, here's this pathetic individual pushing his bike into a bookshop near um, London Bridge Station. And first of all, I'm not a big fan of cyclists, with the, the sort of the new bien-pensant aristocrats of the road. And so I'm not a big fan of them. And the way he was sort of, why do you have to push your bike into a bloody bookshop? And so I thought I made way for him, but anyway, it was difficult. You know, a bike and two people trying to get through a door. And then I hear behind me the, excuse me, it's always, excuse me. He was actually quite posh. He goes, excuse me, you pushed past me. And I just thought, you're wheeling a bike in. And he said something about, you know, you just pushed by, he repeated it. And I, I said, I, I, I what? Very crossly. And... Then he muttered something about manners and social distancing, and I was the one wearing a mask, and he wasn't. At which point, I said, look, mate, you've got mental health issues, clearly, if you're starting fights with strangers. And that's the tack I chose to, you know, basically. I said, you're mad, you need to see a therapist, mate. Because he was carrying on, muttering. You need to see a therapist, you've got a mental health problem, this very loudly to the shop, leaving, as I say in the piece, Probably the customers, probably thinking he wasn't the one with mental health issues, and I was. But it does happen. And what interests me is that actually I think, I hear it all the time, these, these rows between strangers, and there's something about rows between strangers that brings out this incoherent, unexpected rage that one would think twice about addressing to somebody you know. Stuart, you, you produced the series Grumpy Old Men. Did, when you were reading Damien's article, did, did it make you think that it might be time for a reboot? Um, no, I think what Damien is experiencing is a completely different phenomenon for which I think he probably should seek professional help. 
Grumpy Old Men was much more of a sort of syndrome uh, which expressed itself, certainly not in rage, but more uh, a sort of rather, I suppose, pathetic, just under the breath, mumbling and grumbling about the shape of the world and what's it all coming to. And uh, was really about a sort of a generation of people that at that time was defined as between 35 and 54 years old, who found themselves um, the grumpiest uh, generation in history. And uh, I mean, this was probably due to having expectations, to having been brought up with expectations that the world was uh, becoming a better place. Uh, and the realization that everything around you in every shape and form uh, was getting worse and more and more irritating. And so the people who identified with the, the movement, dare I call it that, just were more and more sort of intolerant. But they, they, they certainly wouldn't, I don't think, have expressed themselves with the rage and, um, well, I think Damien's admitting to potential violence. That, um, <laughs> <laughs> Damien, is that, is that right? Are you, are you, are you becoming Well, violent? I'm interested in the student's suggestion that he thinks I should seek professional help. Perhaps he could... Um, give me a bit more guidance on that. Uh, well, only, only uh, I think my reaction is the same as your identifying uh, was probably shared among the other customers in the shop. I mean, I, I certainly sympathise with your view about uh, cyclists, and obviously this person is an insufferable nerd. Um, but honestly, I, I think that um, grumpy old men have got to the stage now where a really as um, excitable as they can get is a sort of gentle tut. <laughs> Damien, you say in your piece that you're planning on hanging up your spurs and you're, you're not going to be getting into any more arguments with people. How's that going? Well, I'm actually rather nervous about talking about it now, lest Stuart order the men in white coats to come <laughs> straight into the spectator office and cart me off. Well, there's a vicious circle here because I could actually, I, I could actually sort of mull on that a little bit, and then it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy, wouldn't it? Oh God! I had another row, Stuart. Can you perhaps you should cover your ears while I confess to this other row I had in the shop? Stuart, what what makes you grumpy or angry? Well, pretty much everything. I mean, it's pretty much... I um, can tell. <laughs> really? <laughs> Journalists. Um, uh, well, talking yes. Talking about their outbursts of rage. Don't get that uh, yeah. No, I, I, I was amused, not, not made grumpy by that. But uh, no, I think life conspires, doesn't it? I, I, the, the original theory of grumpy old men was that when you get over the age of 55, you do start to mellow. But I think that was not to take into account the fact that life does continue to come up with a whole series of, of things that um, just are guaranteed to drive you crazy. And, uh, you know, if it's not, um, you know, being it's, uh, sort of bossed about by your car that is sort of telling you off and not putting your seatbelt on to you know, everything to do with sort of technology. I used to be able to go into town and park my car if I had uh, a few uh, coins in my pocket. Now I need... Uh, to have a, um, a, my credit card and a telephone and I need to call up and uh, have a sort of endless series of options. And if you wish to park here, uh, do this. If you wish to park that vehicle there, park, do something else. All I want to do is park my car. <laughs> uh, so, you know, life is conspiring. No, I agree with you. I have to say I agree with you. The people don't mellow 
in fact, I find it very hard to think of anybody of my contemporaries, and mostly most of them are journalists, who've married. Some of them have gone completely mad, and politically <laughs> mad. I mean, people who were, when I first started working with them in the late 80s, sort of politically moderate, are now, you know, foaming at the mouth conspiracy theorists. And it's quite alarming to watch, actually. And there's a sort of... You can actually see the madness in their eyes. I hope you can't see the madness in my eyes, but then who am I to judge? But you're quite right. I don't think <laughs> people mellow at all. But there's something about the stranger, there's something about the fact that you don't know this person that makes it, for me, but also for others, because I see it, more willing to express yourself furiously, and actually one of my nightmares, it's never happened, but it would serve me right, would be is often on the way to a dinner party. Not that I ever go to dinner parties these days, nobody ever invites me. But supposing I was on the way to a dinner party, and I checked to make sure that you know none of these loonies that I dislike from my past are there. And I got into a fight with a stranger on the way, on the tube or whatever. And told him to go fuck himself or whatever in a state of absolute rage. And then you turn up at the dinner party and he's one of the guests. I just got this horrible feeling it's going to happen to me one day. <laughs> Maybe dinner parties are best avoided then. And uh, Stuart, just finally, do you think the pandemic has made people more grumpy or more angry? I think just honestly, I think everything makes us more angry and I, and I think you know we may indeed as we get older be becoming more mellow but I think the the nature of the provocation has got more serious so we are reacting perhaps more uh, violently you know it's only what sort of 10 or 15 years ago where if um, a politician appeared on the television and told uh, um, an outright lie that was sort of provable within six hours to be a lie there would be um, a sort of a scandal, uh, some calls for resignation, uh, some calls for concern. The fact that now every time you turn on the television or the radio, uh, politicians are saying things which they know not to be true, they do not expect them to be believed. The general sort of mores that kept the some kind of equilibrium in the culture, that there was some kind of you know, consensus and understanding between ourselves and those who seek to rule us uh, has sort of just broken down. So we've got no respect for anybody. And I think that's partly, I agree with you, and I think that's partly because of social media, because anything any politician ever says about anything will lead to hysterical calls for their resignation, actually, on Twitter and places like that. So they're so used to permanent outrage coming from users of social media, which is, you know, three quarters of the population, that everybody's furious about ev everything, at least, you know, through, the, through social media, that perhaps politicians no longer bo bother to distinguish between what you might call genuine offences and things that give offence, which is just about everything, because in a way the entire population has turned into grumpy old men if you count taking offence as a manifestation of it, because we have become not just a nation, but certainly in the Western world, a world of offence takers mm. of all ages and both, well, of all genders, you have to say now. 
And I think that's part of it. I really do. I agree. And, and that's what drives me crazy more than anything else, probably, right now. Ah, good. Well, we <laughs> should go together. We end up a We'll have a joint therapy session. Damien, can I, can I just ask, how's your mood? How Are you feeling more or less angry than when you when we started this recording? Um, I'm, I'm quite chilled now, actually, I think. Damien and Stuart, thank you for coming on. And that's it for the edition this week. If you've enjoyed what you heard and want to know more about the stories we've touched on, do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive. And of course, please do leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. I'm Lara Prendergast and I hope you have a lovely weekend. <laughs>